Welcome to the Smart Tech Check Podcast, hosted by Mark Vina, your home for candid, insightful, and provocative conversations about the smart home, home automation, security, smartphones, PC and console gaming, and much more. Hi, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, host of the Smart Tech Check Podcast. Today is Thursday, August 4th, 2022. Join me for today's podcast are... Stuart Walpin, who scribes for Popular Mechanics, U.S. News, Techlicious, Investopedia, and other wonderful publications. Uh, John Quain, who writes for the New York Times, Smart Cities, and Tom's Guide. Rob Pegarero, who writes frequently on tech policy for Wirecutter, PC Magazine, and USA Today. And um, incidentally, is a wonderful person if you need travel tips. Uh, we'll talk about <laughs> a, little, a little bit about that later. Uh, gentlemen, how are you guys doing today? Good. Very good. Excellent. You know, the, every time I ask that question, there's no enthusiasm. Come on. <laughs> I'm doing fine. It's, it's a little steamy. It's a little steamy here in New York. That they told it's us a little to- toasty outside. It's good clothesline weather. I'll put it that way. You, you know, it's so funny. And I know you watch Tucker Carlson every night, all three of you. <laughs> <laughs> he did a thing last night where he had one of his intrepid guys, as a comedian guy, go out to Times Square and comment on the smells of New York. Now, being a former East Coast guy, I know that when you, I don't care what administration, who the mayor is who's running New York, New York always thinks the high heaven during the summer months. I mean, if you go into the subway, I don't care. Even when Giuliani was mayor, it was a bad odor. But <laughs> is, it that, is it that, is it more demonstrable? I, I can't believe I'm beginning the podcast this way, but <laughs> I, maybe, no. I'm, maybe I'm used to it, but I have no idea what you're talking about. I, yeah, you I, know, I mean, the city, the city has a scent that is maybe distinct from other cities, but I've been walking the city. I've been walking the city for 40 years. I, it, 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 I mean, the people mostly clean up after the dog poop and there's sometimes a garbage outside, but that's, Every city has these problems, so I don't see well, this. But still, in San Francisco, you can't assume that's dog poop. But that's, no, that's very. <laughs> I've walked along. I've walked along some of the streets down on Market Street by San Francisco, and the the homeless population there. Everybody complains about the homelessness in New York. You guys, San Francisco has it all over New York, where that's concerned. Oh yeah. Hey, listen, you guys know on Market Street, there's a um, a Bart stop that's very very. That's not famous, but it's right. You know where you go out to Union Square. And it's like walking through Calcutta. I mean, there are people literally all over the place. And if you go down that escalator to get to the BART, you know, I wouldn't go there at three o'clock in the afternoon, let alone 12 o'clock at night. But no, I, I mean, I, so I don't know what the heck. I haven't been into New York in New York for a year and a half. So I'm not sure. I, I don't know. It's, it's stupid it's like how long it's been since I've been in New York. I'm trying to fix that, guys. It's, <laughs> it's NYC, like I miss you. Every time I go outside, it's just like honeysuckle here. No. <laughs> it smells like it smells like life. I'm I'm uh, I'm close to the East River, so you know, it depends on which way the wind is blowing on, on a particular day. But um, no, it's it's not as bad as it used to be. That's for sure. I, I'd actually say it's definitely improved. As far as that, our big problem in New York: rats, serious yeah, rat wow. problem. Yeah. No we'll problem. Cover that. That's problem. John, we'll cover that on the next podcast. But you know, speaking about bad, speaking about bad odors, uh, just speaking of that, talk about uh, recent developments at Starlink, and I, I really want the majority uh, of time to be spent by you, Rob, and you, John, especially John, because you've had some hands-on 
with Starlink, and you have not been a fan. I think that's a very uh, kind way of saying it. But Rob, let's start. I know you you did a piece about uh, Starlink, and let's bring you into up bring up, the audience up to speed on what you wrote about. Yes, so it's a piece I did for Fast Company, taking a look at you know how far along has Starlink come and what objectives do they have to meet next? And they are kind of in a tricky spot because on the one hand, there's just desperate demand. When you, you talk to people who've been stuck with only DSL or some or, or geostationary satellite broadband somewhere in the country, they are desperate for something that will get them out of that broadband desert. And Starlink is the only option they have. And so I talked I talk to two people who had been in that, that sort of pickle and had waited months. One guy, he placed his order it was over a year between him placing the order and actually getting the Starlink kit and getting it set up. Um, so on the one hand, it's great that Starlink is succeeding in bringing real useful connectivity to places where it was just not available before. But um, speeds have slowed down a little bit, uh, you know, between last, between two quarters ago and the last quarter, slides it down in the U.S. It's faster in other countries. So this is definitely seems to be, to, seems to me to be a reflection of demand and supply not being the same everywhere. Um, Starlink is chasing other lines of business that are definitely more lucrative. Like they, they got a waiver from the FCC and boom, a few days later came out with this maritime service, which is $5,000 a month going for the Russian oligarch market, I guess, uh, which I mean, to be fair, there is demand there and there's plenty of Americans who oligarchs who have their own yachts and they do need to pay for this service because they have capital costs that are nuts. Last summer, uh, Elon Musk gave a talk at MWC Barcelona where he said, I think his low end scenario for capital costs was maybe $15 billion, high end was $30 billion. And it's not at all clear to me that you're going to cover that by charging people 110 bucks a month. There's got to be some other line of business, whether it's, they also have a version now for RVs, which, and this is the one that's really pissed off a lot of people who are on waiting lists. If you buy the RV Starlink, it costs more, the service charges more, but there's no waiting list. But if you want the regular one. Todd, that's odd. Inshallah, the dish will arrive at some point. And uh, they have a lot more satellites to launch. Uh, they're talking up a version two, which is much bigger, like five times as heavy as the version 1.5. And Elon Musk basically said on this YouTube appearance uh, in May, you know, we need the Starship rocket, the giant two-stage, fully reusable beast of a machine that is yet to fly to launch Starlink V2. Falcon 9 is an amazing rocket, but apparently it's not going to work for that. Mm -hmm. So they have a lot of numbers they have to meet. Um, they have issues of demand to manage. And just two days after this piece came out, uh, they announced to Starlink users in France that on the one hand, they're going to cut the service charge in half. On the other hand, they're going to have a new... Uh, fair usage policy where if you go over 250 uh, gigabytes a month, you may see your speeds reduced if there's times of congestion. And we don't really know what that means. You know, when wireless carriers say you may be deprioritized, it could mean it's an incremental slowdown. It could mean you're looking at, you went from a 5G connection to 4G speeds or even 3G speeds. We'll have to see. 250 megabytes a month is not a yeah, lot. 250 gigabytes. Which oh, gigabytes. Oh, gigabytes. I think it's in megabytes. But it's oh. still not in the context of a household internet connection. That's not a whole lot. I mean, that that's yeah. Comcast data cap is 1.2 terabytes. And lots of people find it is way too easy to go over that. So right. 250 gigs is something a lot of people will easily just soar right over. Yeah. Streaming, you'll blow that away. Yeah. No, that's yeah. not, uh, yeah. 
And and by the way, hundred dollars, one hundred and ten a month. That's not exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's not cheap. That's and, not cheap. So I did talk to one customer who'd been on uh, Viasat satellite broadband. That's with geosynchronous orbit. So it's the forty-four thousand mm-hmm. mile round trip, the horrible latency, hot, very high data caps. And she put it this way: uh, You know, we're not paying for extra data. We don't need to have a, a backup hotspot so our kids can play Roblox. Uh, you know, I can do all these other things. So I am saving money on this. Like this is real cost savings compared to the alternative. Mm. Right. Well, I mean, I'm the guy that you're talking about, Rob, who is driving a DSL and uh, HughesNet and whatever the other one was, um, you know, and I've tried them all, um, cellular extenders, the whole nine yards. And I was living on DSL uh, for quite a while. And Starlink was, you know, the supposed to be a godsend. Um, unfortunately, you know, it's technology is kind of patchy. The, 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 the software they need to integrate it. Remember, it's got to go down eventually to a ground station somewhere. That software that they're using, whatever they've done is not very good. So the handoff to different nodes would have me in Boston and then someplace in Northampton. And it was, it was just really patchy. And it's plagued by millisecond dropouts, the whole service. That means it's not very good in terms of video conferencing for things like this. Um, it's fine for streaming, downstreaming and stuff. It's, it's, it's perfectly acceptable, but for some other functions, it's not. And it has limited um, sky availability, which is really strange because the whole point of this was we're going to put up as many as we can. We'll sort of blanket the sky and I can just sort of point the dish wherever I want. I'm going to get a signal not the case um you need to be still up near the 49th parallel still the ideal stretch at least here and so if you're anywhere else you're trying to aim around the trees and you know definitely problems with it so well john your your, your experience while we were doing podcasts while you had it up in um it's not Hampshire, great it was not great i mean right. in fact you used to leave the podcasts <laughs> Inadvertently, two or three times during some of the podcast. Right. And I thought you just didn't like us. No, so, and I've abandoned it. You know, since then, I've got, we got a federal uh, help and assistance because we're on a very rural road where that also part of those projects. And finally, a neighbor finagled all that government rigmarole that we needed to do. And we finally got cable after, you know, decades of no service on this rural road. Um, and we all dumped everything else. And so that was the end of Starlink for me. It was like, bye-bye, you know? Um, so, but Rob's right. If you have no alternative, it's like the only game right now, but it is, it's got, they got some serious work to do, uh, on their software and their handoff down to the, the ground. So, um, still work in progress very much. So, Stuart, let's end this conversation, this topic with you. Um, I guess, given the feedback from Rob and John, you would not, you would not quickly sign up for Starlink. If you- <laughs> well, not in Midtown Manhattan, just, just the reflecting problems, you know, with satellite signal. But I think, if, if I remember correctly, there are only 2,700 satellites providing all of this service. And, and given the size of the planet, um, and, and the capacity needs, that seems like a very, very low number. And I'm assuming that, as Rob mentioned, that getting the version 2 up there, which are promised to have more capacity, will help solve the problem. This is all, these are economic technology problems. You know, you talk about the price being $100. It's very funny. I just signed up my mother for, for, for Fios. And she's paying not that much more than that for a triple package of landline phone cable with 
premium services as well as 200 me um, 200 megabit per second um, gigabits per second um, service. 100 megabit per second internet. Um, but obviously, this is an early adopter situation, and pricing for early adoption is always going to be higher. You know, having done stories on the early days of you know of television, early televisions. In 2022 dollars, those first 12-inch black and white TVs were like $1,500. So you're paying for the research and development. You're paying as an early adopter. You know, the manufacturing of the devices, the fact that it's taking this long means they don't have their manufacturing up to speed yet. But these are all first-generation early adoption problems that are not that much different from any other first product that hits the market, whether it was television or DVD or even satellite television to begin with. So, and satellite obviously just has so much of a higher R&D and implementation cost than say the DVD player or, you know, the Macintosh, you know, um, which was, I think, $2,400 when it first came out in 1984 dollars. Um, so I, I don't think that any of this is atypical of a first generation product. It will soon be joined, theoretically anyway, by Kuiper. And I think there's yep. a third company that's gonna be doing it. So the competition will help drive down costs. So I, none of these, these are all, these early hiccups and technological hiccups, costs, variances, pricing, I think these are all very, very typical of first generation. The only difference here is that I think it may be that in two, three, four years from now, that the, both the spread of 5G and perhaps even 6G may negate the need for satellite-based internet service. If if the cellular companies get on the ball, realize that there's competition and there's also demand in rural areas that they will continue to expand their networks to provide coverage to a lot of these current dead zones. So I think a lot of this is market will be market-driven. It is very typical of early adoption and early market kind of things. In a couple of years, I think it will normalize to a certain extent, if not be negated by the spread of 5G by the major carriers around the world. So about the Starlink population, the uh, first generation deployment they're authorized to do by the Federal Communications Commission is 4,408 satellites. So they're over halfway there. Uh, they have they filed last year for a second generation system, which would be twenty nine thousand nine hundred eighty eight, which is a lot. <laughs> that's like, like, that's they, like it. The, the orbital mechanics there get very complex. You're definitely right that five G from the sky. Five G wireless broadband has a lot of potential to reach some of those hard to connect areas. There is a lot of federal, like forty two billion dollars in federal funding to help build out fiber in underserved areas, which is also going to do a lot to get a lot of people offline who offline get them online. Right. Yeah. right. I, I would actually say the 5G is never, ever, ever going to be that solution, right? It takes too many towers and the rural areas won't allow that many towers. They won't allow towers for 4G. So you're not going to get 5G out there either. That's like if, a non If you live in an area with no broadband and you don't let 5G towers get built, your no broadband is your problem. Yeah, well, that's that's New Hampshire, Vermont. You know, I can can't start listing the states. Enjoy the so maple syrup, but if you want telecom services, they got to right. get put somewhere. But uh, they don't. They don't. So they the don't have, They're not going to allow towers. So that's we've got cable before we got cellular. So yeah, that, I think we, we, we got we got to get to that. 
We gotta get to the next topic here, but the only thing I'm gonna end with no, it's okay. This is a great conversation. I think I'll (laughs) I'll kind of get to didn't Sam Kinison have a joke about why do all the people who are uh, they're living in areas where there's there's no water and he used to scream, just move to where the water is. (laughs) So bad, bad 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 joke. But no, this is this is obviously an important topic, and I think um and honestly, I really think that uh, Stuart has characterized it accurately. We're in the early days of all of this, and um, this is kind of like you know the Continental Railroad connect coming across the United States, and you would not want to have been on the Continental Railroad back in 1865 or whenever the heck it was. You know, although I, you might argue that Amtrak's not much of an improvement over the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that, that, that's a different discussion. Hey, at least Amtrak has air conditioning. Yes, and kind of internet kind of works when you're taking it. <laughs> All right, let's hit the next topic here. Uh, Stuart, this is your uh, topic, and it, I think it's good to see that the FCC is cracking down on vehicle warranty robocalls. I, I, I wish they would be tackling every type of robocall because I still get lots of robocalls uh, despite the um, despite the the, uh, the attention the government is placing on this. But what are your thoughts on this? Well, it's really funny uh, when I sent it to you and then I started to think about it. The FCC actually did something really good. I haven't gotten one of those calls in weeks. And, you know, it's sort of like um, it's hard to notice something that is absent. It's sort of like a classroom of people and the teacher going, everybody not here, raise their hands. You know, I mean, the fact that I'm, I don't think that I've I don't know about you guys, but it just occurred to me, I haven't gotten any of those calls of late. It turns out that they actually found the single individuals, like three or four of them, running this multi-country operation, and they arrested them. Uh, and they sent out a notice to um, all the, um, the phone companies to not let these people have these phone numbers anymore apparently they bought a list of like a half a million phone numbers and just flooded the market but like i said they found them you know you will and and they and they've stopped like i said i'm sure that you guys maybe have thought of it but i haven't gotten any so something actually worked the way it was supposed to now why it took this long why the phone companies couldn't figure out that they were being used like this and are continually to be used like this. There are plenty of laws in place to stop this. There are plenty, there's plenty of technology um, and plenty of pronouncements by the telephone companies that they're putting a stop to it. But obviously it's a profit center for them. So why would they stop something that makes them money? People are paying for phone service. Why don't we? And they're making a lot of calls or so making money from it. But it, it just a, it, it's a wonder to me both that this actually worked, that these have, calls have actually stopped, and that it took this long to get them to get stopped, either by the FCC or by the phone companies themselves who have all of this technology in their hand and had pronounced that they were able to do this and just didn't. Well, I still get crazy robocalls. I got one yesterday. Uh, for, and, and by the way, they're becoming very savvy where the robocall essentially told me that I had – charges for an, uh, an Apple uh, Mac, MacBook, and some other stuff on Amazon.com. It was, of course, a completely synthesized voice. It was a human voice. And that, you know, hit this number and I get, presumably type in your credit card number and that's how they would get your information. I wish, I, again, I don't know whether you, you can pass legislation to stop that, but 
I mean, that to me is really insidious. It's one thing about getting a, a, a legit, like a quote, quote, legitimate robocall for a, a product you may not want, but okay, a vehicle warranty purchase. I don't need that, but it's there they're are not- there are some states are passing laws. There, are, I don't think there's a federal law, but there are a lot of states, including New York, that has passed several laws, including do not call lists, which have varying degrees of efficacy. Um, but it's a state state by state thing. I don't think there's a federal law against it. Individual states are doing it. The fact mm-hmm. that these auto warranty calls were, I think, the most insidious and ubiquitous um was was a huge deal like i said i haven't gotten any and it's been greatly relieved that my because i got more spam calls than i got actual calls on my landline phone which is well really- and john you know and john this is probably very easy to explain because people you know during this issue with gasoline prices going up the cost of, of cars going up people are holding on to their cars so I might be more receptive to taking a a, 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 a robocall for a vehicle warranty, which is that's insidious because they're preying on people's emotions and the current market environment. But what, what are your thoughts on what's going on here? Well, I wish they'd stop the Chinese consulate from calling me. Is the <laughs> <what's happening laughs> all the time. I don't know why but I pick up the phone, and and that's a whole unique scam. It, it may be unique for, to New York that they're they're preying on. Um, you know, uh, first generation Chinese in, in the States. It's, but there are all these different scams. Yeah, the warranties are interesting because, you know, cars are much more reliable now than they ever were before, you know, and you really don't need these ones that you see advertised on TV, you know, well, I had my transmission replaced and stuff like that. You really have to abuse a car to, yeah. to replace a transmission. Um, these days, at any rate, you know, cars that are made in the last 10 years. Uh, but you're right, cars are the average, you know, uh, ownership now is like 12 years. It's getting a little longer all the time. We'll probably the next time we look at it, 13 years because it's been hard to buy a new car, or find a new car. Um, so you're right, that is changing. But um, yeah, it is sort of that old fashioned idea of these warranties that you don't, you're not really going to need. Well, not, and, and not only that, why would I want to get a warranty from a third party? Every major car manufacturer has extended warranties. They probably are a bit more expensive than a third party, but I would never get a third party. No, and it's it's what we used to tell people about the Best Buy, you know, warranties and stuff like that. Look, oh, yeah. your TV, when you plug that TV and if it works for the first 24 hours, it's going to work for the next 10 years, you know, and it's the same with your PC and stuff. So well, you I, really- I want to pull Robin to this because he's the kind of guy who, when he buys a USB-C cable at Best Buy, he paid for the warranty. <laughs> I did years ago have fun <laughs> It was a column that actually started with an interaction my mom had at a PC Richard store in New Jersey, where the sales guy was like, we'll throw in the extended warranty for free. I'm like, okay, what is the business model? And then it was made apparent that, you know, in fact, the extended warranty company was paying PC Richards a spiff sales promotion fund to get the guy to sell it. So he'll make money. He doesn't care. And, you know, the, the warranty company figures they might get some business out of it. What the heck? Probably no one will use it. Uh, so I actually just got my most recent. I was looking it up, fiddling on my phone to look up uh, yesterday. Uh, a <laughs> robocall about your extended service contract. Uh, it's interesting what the SEC did here, though. They also went after the order name, like eight or so BOIP calling firms for aiding and abetting these, and basically said you have 24 hours <laughs> to comply to explain what you're doing to not pass on these calls, or we will basically instruct every telecom company in the U.S. to refuse your traffic, which is basically. 
the SEC nuking them from orbit. Right. No, that's that's DEFCON 5. The thing that actually is the next step from this, I have been getting, I don't say a lot, but a lot more spam texts. Yes. As well as spam emails. I mean, there are at least a dozen of both spam texts and spam emails that I am blocking. I got one 12 minutes ago while on this podcast. <laughs> it's the, well, and the, as the you, weird. And, and as you know, most of my friend from a number you've never seen before, right. which I guess is called, you're supposed to get into a conversation and eventually the person, know, they get you to become your best friend through random texts. I, I don't know what the deal with that is, but. Well, I'm, I'm getting the like, spam filtering is useless. Bang. I'm getting them from Citibank and Bank of America that there's a freeze on my account or I just got one yesterday from Netflix, but it was spelled out as an acronym. Well, no, it's real. I've been going on a spending spree in your cards, man. I meant to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm on the phone with the three credit unions to freeze lock, and freeze and lock my accounts all the time. And Stuart, both political parties have discovered spam tax because, you know, I, I – I get uh, messages from, I, I, and, and that's a completely different topic in that both political parties sometimes will use um, these um, fundraising text messages where they pretend to be a Republican when they're really a Democrat, but they want to fundraise for the, for the candidate kind of the, that they really want to lose. I mean, it's all kinds of games that go well, on. Well, that's what they were doing in Kansas with the abortion thing, that the pro-life yeah people sent out a sent out a text that said vote yes on this for to protect to protect women's health when the um the, yes. the pro-choice side yeah. you had to vote no for right yes right so it happens on both yeah. sides of the political spectrum no, crazy stuff going on but we got to get to this next one topic here and that is and this one as you guys know because we've talked about this before this drives me crazy <laughs> that my, my favorite political party, ha, 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 <laughs> uh, I shouldn't really editorialize. It, it, they want the U.S. Commerce Department to do the same thing that's going on in Europe, which is basically to standardize on smartphone and consumer electronics charging points. And I understand the, the, the motive. I understand the intention, which is kind of well-intentioned. But I just think that when the government starts telling a manufacturer what to do versus let the marketplace kind of drive what product requirements are and the product features are. I just think that this is like well-intentioned gobbledygook from my perspective, but maybe I'm wrong. So Stuart, what's your view on this? You're not wrong. What they did in Europe was stupid and what they're suggesting here. And by the way, it's pretty much bipartisan, quite frankly. It's just not one side or the other who's pushing for this. Apple's entire business model is built on obsoleting stuff that we don't need anymore. If they had not, for instance, gotten rid of the CD uh, player on the Macintosh, we might not have, or it might have not as come fast enough the ability to download. Companies are now forced to download software, which is a hell of a lot more convenient. The fact that everybody screamed and yelled when they got rid of the, the headphone jack, but that it, that created the entire Bluetooth headphone business. An entire business was essentially accelerated, if not completely born, from that. So the idea that you're going to freeze a technology standard in place, especially 
for an innovative for innovative companies, whoever they are, it's just plain stupid. The market will take care of this. Apple is already moving and is already moving in this direction. Nobody, we all own anybody who's ever owned an Apple phone has plenty of Apple lightning cables. This is this is a solution in search of a problem, and you're just going to create a bigger problem because if they force Apple to get rid of the lightning cable before they're ready. The market will now be filled with all these old lightning cables with nowhere to go, and we'll just fill the. So I, I suggest I suspect you have. <laughs> so I, love, I love Stuart's passion on these podcasts. John, I think we have a counterpoint coming, but go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm not going to do the Jane, you, you know. <laughs> but um, look, you know, for me, I, I kind of, I mean, it seems like a silly idea, but, you know, we're, I'm everything here is plugged into an outlet with a standard. I, you guys remember when cell phone first came out, there was no standard. That was all, all crazy, insane stuff. And we put standards out there all the time. And we ISO standards, and that's all fair game. Nobody whines about that. It seems pretty normal, but yeah, those plugs should all be the same. You know, I don't think that that's a big deal. And I think it would be very helpful and would eliminate a lot of waste eventually and a lot of excess cables and crap that we have that I'm going to take to all these trips I've been doing the last month. Everywhere I go now, i got to have a bag of adapters for each of these darn devices. John, John, I can that completely. When I put in my bag, a difference, my, my, there's a difference between government mandate and ISO or standards bodies mandate. The standards bodies are cooperation between all the companies as opposed to a government mandate in which have no input. I think those are two different things. Two different things. But they always have input. They, you know, even the safety regulations there's input for those. It's public Some fancy new technology they were going to introduce to those power adapted plugs. I'd like to hear because it's really not working. I think that it's fine. You still have the same problem with AC out. I have to take all these adapters with me when I another. So if an ISO is dead, global. Where is the electrical? The electrical global. But you know, I want, I want, but I want Rob the way into this because I, my fear is that, and I haven't read the law. I haven't read the um the the text of the of the of the direction yet. So I would, I want to read it before I pass judgment completely. But my, but my fear is like a lot of regulations that are written for agencies. They're written in such a way that they can be extrapolated to other unrelated circumstances. For example, let's say the, the Chamber of Com the Department of Commerce came along and says, you know what? We think that a smartphone that had only eight gigabytes of memory is not performing fast enough for the average consumer. So the, the company should be, uh, should be shipping at no extra cost additional uh, RAM or, or have a feature because their experience is not sufficient enough from a uh, from a from a user standpoint, so it's that misapplication that I'm concerned about. I mean, Rob, are you concerned about that? That there might be no. Kind of I'm not concerned. I'm not concerned as being a regulatory creep thing, where you know you have this authority to say that you know all these things should have USB support. Which, to be clear, I think the Lightning cable sucks. It needs to go away. Uh, Apple is being very unhelpful by sticking to it. And and you know they're going to get rid of it because they're already halfway through that transition on the iPad. So get it over with. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and if, if any company that is still shipping a gadget that has a micro USB company, that company sucks. A micro USB plug. But 
this amount to do, a monopoly government has to solve? Given that, I mean, if you want to standardize any kind of charging cable, do it for electric cars where the hardware is really expensive and there are massive network effects going on. Although, fortunately, it looks like we're headed that way anyways. Tesla's in the EU already used the CCS charging standard. It's going to happen in the U.S. at some point. Um, but, yeah, no, I think we, we have many bigger issues in tech policy to solve than this. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, I would like for Apple to sort of address the actual problem here, which is, you know, get rid of your precious proprietary charging cable and deal with the program. Well, the new iPhone announcement, I believe, is set for, I think it just went out. It's, it's set for September, I think, like it normally is. And we'll find out if the new iPhone is going to be USB-C. There'll be a, there'll be a rejoicing from Manhattan uh, and watching these things should happen. I want to get to the last topic here. Um, let me bring this up. It's over here. You know, I, 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 we have to comment on this because we are kind of in that back to school season uh, right now uh, where, you know, people traditionally are buying stu- uh, gadgets and school supplies and kind of computers kind of fit into that uh, category. You know, I just want to ask each of you because I'm sure each of you get asked by family members and friends about what brands would you be recommending and even models for, um, for kids. And I'm not talking really at the, at the, at the grammar school level, I'm talking about high school college. A lot of colleges are prescriptive. They'll actually recommend a specific model, but just want to get your thoughts. And let me start with Stuart in terms of what are you, the trusted brands that you're recommending and why? Well, I think it's less about the brands and I'll get to a brands in, in a minute. I'm not a windows person, so I don't feel that I'm fair on that, but for kids, at least elementary and even high school, I would recommend a Chromebook only because students at that level they're much less expensive, especially for the parents, and the needs are probably not as great, and the parents probably have a full-fledged computer at home that the kids can use for any big project, but we know how kids are with equipment. They're very hard on equipment, and for parents to replace a 1000 or a $1,500 laptop, not a good thing. For college, it's just, it's funny, I, my wife and I just got her a new laptop, which we're expecting any minute now, and we were looking at the M2, the new M2 MacBook, MacBook Air. But we decided after talking to the salesman and considering what my wife needs it for, that the M1 MacBook Air, which is still the wedge shape, was fine. And I didn't want to fall into the good enough category. But the difference between the M1 and the M2, unless you're doing some really high volume video work, it, it's it's a $200 extra expense for a slightly heavier machine that's not the web shape and doesn't come in, in the rose gold that she liked. So it was fine. And we got extra 16 gig of RAM and I got her terabyte of memory, but we saved $200 on it. And for a college kid, $200 is a lot, still a lot of money. And, yep. and, and you, you can't recommend a Windows platform. I don't, I'm not a Windows user, so I can't say yes, this particular model of, of, of Windows machine is better than another. I mean, I see the ads and I, you know, I, I get the press releases, but I don't have any enough hands-on experience to say a Dell is better than an HP, which is better than a Lenovo. It's, I, I, I'm not as deep into it as perhaps my compatriots are to make an, a Windows recommendation, other than saying that a Chromebook, I think, is better choice for elementary and high school students. 
Well, let me let me pull Rob into this because again, I I tend to be skewing toward Mac myself because of the work that I do and a lot of the tools are available at a Mac level. But that, but I'm not a student. I'm, I'm certainly not in grammar school. I'm certainly You're not in high school. College. I have a job, so I, I, I Apple equipment typically helps me in that uh, in that quest. But I will say because I do get a lot of gear from different uh, PC OEMs, and Dell just sent me their new uh, Dell XPS. 13-inch plus, which is the, uh, the a competitor with um, the MacBook Air, and I will tell you, it is a stunning machine. The entire um, it's striking in that the entire palm rest is a touchpad. I know a little bit about touchpads, given my business um, orientation, uh, and uh, and I have to say, from a value standpoint, you know, you can buy a, a Dell XPS 13-inch plus, and I'm just using them as an example. I mean, you could say the same thing about a lot of other PC guys, but you know, you're not. You know, if you're going to spend thirteen, fourteen hundred bucks for, let's say, you decide to spend that much, and it is a lot of money, you'll get a lot more for your bang for your buck from a storage processor, even including the Apple, uh, uh, Apple Silicon solutions, which are fabulous. I got that, but I, you know, it, unfortunately, Apple is not the cost leader. <laughs> I mean, that's what it boils down to. I mean, Rob, what, what are your thoughts? So, yeah, one thing we have to mention is, does the school in question, do they do they recommend anything? Like, are, are they, a, is their setup optimized for Chromebooks? In which case, go ahead with that. Um, you know, if, you know, if, if it's some school that doesn't have Wi-Fi everywhere, then a Chromebook is clearly not going to be a good choice. Uh, I agree that you, you definitely save money on a Windows laptop. Dell and HP are doing lots of good work. You do have the advantage of it being a touchscreen. You can get the laptop in a convertible configuration, which, as I said before, Apple doesn't think anybody actually wants. I think Apple is incorrect that way, which is why I have a Windows laptop on this desk. Um, yeah, I, I would definitely say do not spend too much on a school laptop just because of the abuse factor, the, the non-trivial yes. chance it may, you know, walk away in its own somehow. Um and yeah, otherwise, if you're looking at a particular model, read the reviews on. Like I, I read for Wirecutter, I read for PC Mag. Both those places spent a lot of time testing out new laptops in detail. And so, if you're looking at one in particular, see what they say. See what they say about battery life. Um, you know, what's if it's a PC? Does it have a lot of junk software on it or not? Uh, you know, is it convertible or not? Definitely make sure it has enough storage, at least half a terabyte. That should be table stakes these days. And um, yeah, yeah, no, I, no, I agree. And uh, we should only read Rob's reviews. You know, just listen. To I have not actually read Rob's up in a while, so I'm he's, actually not. He's the authority. It's not Stuart. It's not John. It's only Rob. No, no, it's uh, the, I. I <laughs> well, that and the three of you are all, all very fine writers. Uh, let's put a bow on this, uh, John. Uh, are you? Uh, and, we, and by the way, I might want to say one thing before you start the comment. Windows 11 has come a long way. I mean, I mean, for a while, you know, Windows was a bit wonky. 10 got to a better place. I've been playing with the new version of Windows, which is version 11, which is um, yeah, it's nice. It's actually pretty, and it's pretty good. Not that it matters, although Apple thinks eye candy looking operating systems is a big deal. It, it's a good looking operating system too, just from an appearance standpoint. But outside of iMessages, which is really the only feature that I'm disappointed with for a whole bunch of reasons, Apple is not doesn't provide the API to um, Microsoft to do this. You can't access your text messages from your iPhone on a, a Windows platform. It's still a very robust um, operating system, but. Uh, John, your thoughts? 
Yeah, I am a Windows user because that's the majority of the world and I have to go where the majority of the world goes in terms of testing and stuff. And I'm a student, believe it or not. So I have to go back to school in, you know, uh, a couple of weeks here, uh, start courses again. So I'm uh, actually watching what students use and, and myself, um, you know, in terms of uh, Windows machines and brands over the years, um, Lenovo has remained a pretty reliable one for me in terms of dropping it and not breaking it and, and still working. Um, through a lot of travel and stuff, I found it to be one of the more reliable ones where some of the other brands you mentioned, not so much, um, not as durable. And that can be a very anecdotal thing. But if you've got a kid who's going to school, you want to consider that. Um, I agree with Rob about how much you should spend because, again, you know, you could drop it, break it. It could get stolen or lost. Um, and you don't want to invest, you know, everything you've got in, in that. Um, and it may not be suitable next year for school, too. Um, I have seen some Chromebook use. Um, and I, the odd man out, which is really strange, uh, a cohort of mine, she would be in a lot of my seminars. She's using a Microsoft Slate, which, you know, I think of as interesting to test, but not really practical. But the way that we use them now with all the articles and research papers being on PDFs, we don't have hard copies anymore. Most of the textbooks are on PDFs um, and you can loan them through your library. You can highlight it and take notes and it does it very well. It was surprising. I watched her use this and I was like, that's a lot smarter than what I'm doing on oh, my yeah. laptop. Oh, yeah. So I mean, I would have killed to have... Um, an iPad or, or by the way, a, a, a laptop with touch capability when I was back in college, because how many books or articles did, or did you read while you guys were in college where you just kind of flew by the word? You didn't know what that word meant. You kind of thought you knew what it meant, but it didn't have built in embedded dictionary capability. And just yeah. that one capability today is a, is a humongous boon for our students. Well, also this student, uh, I won't mention her name. <laughs> But she, as a colleague, she, you know, she highlights in different colors and was very organized about all the notes she took, which is really only possible in, in this format, I have to say, yeah. on, on that Slate machine. Um, she got accepted to medical school at a very high ranking medical school in California. So she was obviously taking the right study procedures and uh, had the right machine. It, it, you know, it's something that I, I've tested, but it wasn't one that I would normally recommend. But seeing it, that was at a college level, you know. Right. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, in terms of brands, typically take a major brand. They're all pretty good. But uh, the durability factor I'm on uh, Lenovo right now is the one that survived for me. No, I, th I think you really can't one, one, one bizarre Coda thought on all of this. You mentioned what you if you had these when you went to school. I, I went to college on a manual typewriter, and it, it, it just occurred to me that somehow the kids aren't graduating any smarter despite having all of this unbelievable technology at their disposal. It, it, um, I'm I'm old enough that type that computers were were so futurescape when I was in college. I still have papers in my closet that I wrote on a manual royal typewriter. So, Stuart, just, I, I, I'm, I'm envisioning the movie Goodbye, Mr. Chips. You didn't go back. <laughs> when you went to college in the 1920s. Oh, boy, when I was a young girl. <laughs> Guys, we're going to have to kind of wrap this up, but uh, thank you for taking the time to join me for today's podcast. For our viewing and listening audience, thanks for making the Smart Tech Check podcast part of your day or commute. 
Please make sure that you hit the like and subscribe buttons at the end of today's podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Mark Vina Tech Guy. And until next time, have a great week. Thanks, man. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks.